The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. And today we're trying something new. We're going to have a debate that's going to discuss whether YouTube is indeed radicalizing its users. Joining us to discuss it on the con side is Mark Ludwich, who's a software engineer who's done some data engineering about this stuff. And on the pro, I I feel like it's fun to put you in this category, is Kevin Roos of the New York Times, who's written uh, a widely shared and very interesting story about someone uh, who did indeed get radicalized on YouTube and then produced a very popular podcast about it called Rabbit Hole. So just quick introductions, Mark. You are Australia-based. You're a software engineer. That's right. Yeah, I um, uh, my background's in software and I... Um, I've heard a lot of um, the reporting and research in this area, and I felt like there was a there was a gap missing for someone just to monitor exactly what YouTube was doing. So mm-hmm. I took a sabbatical. You went ahead and did it. I went and did it. Yeah, so, and now I'm just trying to disseminate the information that I'm finding and I'm bring attention to it. Okay, great. Well, I appreciate you joining the show uh, and you know being willing to talk about it here. Not only that, but being able to discuss it with someone who's going to be critical of your work, which uh, which I appreciate. And so, Kevin, you're at the New York Times, correct? And um, I think a good way for us to begin with uh, begin this is to start uh, with a bit of a recap of the story that started it all. Uh, and uh, Kevin, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit of a recap of what you talk about. At rabbit hole and by the way folks if you haven't listened to rabbit hole i highly recommend it um and maybe this discussion will will inspire you to do it with the added context um but kevin can you introduce us to the guy that you met caleb and how he, uh he became radicalized through youtube sure so i've been looking into online extremism and radicalization for a number of years um, and after the 2009 um, shooting in Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, that was the one where it was you know, streamed on Facebook and posted about on 8chan. And, um, you know, the, the shooter uh, had this very like online manifesto. It was awful. And it was, you know, he referred to PewDiePie and, and, and sort of that sort of catalyzed for me what became the next sort of year of reporting. Um, where I was really trying to answer the question, like, like, how does this happen? How do people encounter extremist uh, views online? What role do platforms play in introducing them to new and compelling extremist voices? And sort of what are the forces that power that process? So I was really looking for a case study, um, someone who's sort of who would sort of let me talk to me about their sort of, um, their, their journey, their process. And, um, so I started looking around and eventually found this guy, Caleb Kane. Um, he's, he was 26. Um, he's probably now 28. Um, he was from Virginia or West Virginia, and he had a really interesting story. He basically, um, was, you know, a Obama supporting liberal, um, 
dropped out of college, was having some real troubles in his, in his personal life. Not a lot was sort of going right for him. Started looking on YouTube for self-help videos, um, things that might help him feel better and, and stumbled onto this network of creators, including people like Stefan Molyneux, who really helped him feel better. They sort of, you know, had videos about self-confidence and, you know, meeting people and getting a job and just sort of almost like life coaching. And so he started watching these videos and, and started watching other videos that were recommended from those videos. And he ultimately became pretty far right. I mean, he was he he considers himself alt-light, um, not fully alt-right. Um, at that's what he's how he sort of characterizes it now. But at at the sort of base level, he he said that he was radicalized into the far right through his YouTube recommendations and eventually started agreeing with many of the sentiments of people like the Christchurch shooter. And then actually came out of that, was sort of de-radicalized um, from watching videos by this other cohort of YouTubers uh, known as BreadTube, who are sort of the left wing. Um, they do a lot of sort of counter-programming of the kind of alt-right section of YouTube. And so he, he eventually sort of got out of it and started making videos and, and talking about how he had gotten out of it. And I was just fascinated. I was, I was really interested in meeting him. So I went to West Virginia, talked to him for days. And then he um, provided me with his entire YouTube history. So 12,000 videos spanning four years. And I could see uh, it was just big, giant HTML uh, document. And so I you were able see- to download the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. There's the, there's this Google takeout function where you can download mm-hmm. all your data. And so he just downloaded his whole YouTube history and sent it to me. And so wow. we were able to kind of go through that um, and kind of retrace his, his journey um, and all the people that he met along the way. And so that became the story um, making of YouTube radical that, um, that Caleb is featured in. And it's, it's about him and his journey, but it's also about what was going on at YouTube at the time. And the way that those things interacted, and the way that the the changes that YouTube was making um, around its algorithm, you know, reprogramming it around uh, deep neural networks, um, changing some of the key metrics that it was optimizing for, changing from uh, clicks to watch time, how all of those uh, factors sort of helped uh, create the environment in which Caleb was radicalized. Um, so that's the story. Right. And, and in your reporting, and we'll get to Mark in a second, but in your reporting, did you ever put a finger as to how many Caleb's there were and whether this was a one person problem or you, you were tracing the route that the Christ Church shooter could have taken? Or was this something that was a larger issue happening, not just to one or two people, but far more than that? Well, I, I should say at the time I started reporting it, I had already heard a bunch of stories from people. Um, I was doing things like looking through Unicorn Riot. Um, Unicorn Riot is this is this group that is sort of a a left wing sort of counter extremism group that you know has leaked has, has sort of obtained and leaked a bunch of Discord chats and other communications from far right groups. And a lot of the times, if you read through those things, it would be people who are, you know, currently pretty far to the right. Maybe they're white nationalists. And they would say, like, I got into this through YouTube. Um, so you would see these sort of testimonials of how people encounter these ideas. Um, and since the story in the podcast came out, I mean, I've heard from thousands of people. Um, 
who have similar stories to Caleb's um, or whose family members or friends do. So it's impossible to quantify, but like this is not a single person problem. Um, and this is, um, you know, this is, this is a, this is a problem that was big enough that YouTube, you know, felt it, it had to address it through sort of changing its policies on white nationalism, hate speech, borderline content, and also changing its recommendation algorithm. Great. And one more follow-up, and this is probably an unfair question, but here we go. Uh, when was the last time you've heard from someone that's come to you with an issue similar to Caleb? So is this a common issue currently, or is this something that was in the past? Oh, you mean like who is saying this happened to me last week or? Yeah. Have you had it? Some, have you had like someone, you said thousands of people have reached out to you. So how, have, how recently has that happened or has it tailed off I mean, recently? It, it happens almost every day. Um, and I would say it, um, many of the stories that I, I hear are about um, people. There, there seems to have been this sort of golden era of right-wing YouTube from about 2014 until about 2019 when they started sort of making changes to tamp down the influence of some of these channels. And so a lot of it took place in kind of that five-year window, but there's been other rashes of it this year. I mean, we've seen a lot of people becoming radicalized during the pandemic. Mm. Um, QAnon has been, you know, has, has grown like crazy. And um, some of the adjacent um, sort of communities to that have become quite large. And so it's not just happening on YouTube, it's happening all over the internet. But um, I, I think that that period, this sort of 2014 to 2019 period is the one that I was really interested in. Okay, great. Yeah, I really wanted to establish Kevin's argument. But now, Mark, I'm going to turn it over to you. What's the counter argument? Uh, you seem to believe that people aren't being radicalized or on YouTube or aren't being radicalized to the same extent that Kevin might uh, be telling us. So where, where's your proof? So um, we, did a, we did a study where I've been collecting um, data about um, YouTube's recommendations since late 2018. And we saw those changes, so some of them at least. So we weren't we weren't collecting at the time what was really um, promoting clickbait kind of material. Um, when we started, it was fairly neutral in terms of the amount of views that videos got. Um, recommendations were pretty much proportional to that. And then early 2019, YouTube really clamped down on borderline content and conspiracy content. So I think think we're aligned with the way we understand what's happened there. But I think um, more broadly. My, um, I think uh, the influence of recommendations in terms of someone radicalizing is just a very small part of a larger process. So like with the Christchurch shooter, I read that report and there were so many other factors. And as they say in the report, it, um, it, it's often a once-off, a highly personalized journey it's, it's, it's no one model can explain the different ways people radicalize to extremism. So I feel like my analogy for recommendations would be that there are, there are like a gentle breeze that's able to be controlled by YouTube, but there's larger factors at play in the environment that's more like a storm that's, you know, pushing all sorts of directions at different times and for different people. And, but the recommendations are much more gentle than that, but, something that that's in their control. Okay. So, so unpack that a little bit. So basically what you're saying is that people do get recommended videos and they can go down these rabbit holes, but uh, you have to look at that as just one factor of many and, and 
Yeah, why don't you you go ahead on that one? Yeah, like it's one factor of many, and I wouldn't describe the recommendations people get as a rabbit hole. We found that um, um, on average, recommendations go towards more mainstream content, at least since um, early 2019. So it may have been back then, but we don't have data on that, and I haven't seen anyone else with good data on that either. So we're speculating as to whether the recommendations were pushing that direction or not. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Kevin, there's two arguments here, and Mark, correct me if I'm not summarizing them right. But one is we shouldn't put too much emphasis on YouTube, uh, given that uh, you know people are living not only in YouTube but in the world, and there's other factors in the world. And and two is that you know these recommendations don't always take people you know down this down this rabbit hole, and in fact the term might might be wrong in and of itself. So, what's your response on that front? Well, to the first argument, I mean, I I agree with Mark that there are other factors. I mean, in the story about Caleb Kane, um, you know, I talk about the sort of larger forces at work here. I mean, it's um, he was living in an economically depressed area. He didn't have a lot of career prospects. He had kind of a, a shitty family life. Um, and it was like, it was not, he did not arrive at YouTube as a blank slate. I mean, he was coming in with a number of different, um, you know, personal traits that made him especially vulnerable to this. Um, but I, I just, I don't think that we can discount YouTube's influence, especially now um, when all of us are just experiencing the world through our screens. Um, YouTube hasn't released data in a while, but the the sort of last thing we know as of a couple years ago, people were watching a billion hours a day of YouTube. Um, it is something like 15% of all internet traffic um, is is through YouTube. So it's this is not a small part of people's media diets. And especially for the group of people that I'm, you know, that I started studying, which was kind of this, these like people who are maybe a few years younger than, than I am, people who are in their, you know, teens and twenties, um, who really for them, like YouTube is media. It is culture. It is politics. Like YouTube is a sort of um, all encompassing frame of reference for everything. And so for those people, it's not just, you know, it, it's more than just one in a system of of inputs. It is like the primary input by a long way. Um, and on the second point, the sort of rabbit hole um, uh, pipeline argument. Um, I mean, I, I'm interested to hear more about this from Mark, you, Mark, because I've, I've read your study and I've read some other studies about this. And there have been some studies that have found strong evidence for um, for sort of the the migration of viewers from more sort of centrist and kind of alt-light um, videos to alt-right and sort of hard-right content over time, um, whether that's through recommendations or through other forces, um, you know, is a question that probably can't be answered, except if you work at YouTube. Um, but I, I'm curious, you know, there have been some studies sort of suggesting that this doesn't happen. Um, like, do you think it is possible with the data that we have that is currently available to us as non-YouTube employees to account for and and quantitatively study the effects of radicalization on YouTube? Like, do you think that's even like a, a an achievable goal? Um, I, I think you can do much better than we're doing now. But no, I think right now, like there's still much, there's still room for um, 
a lot of um, other uh, there's a lot of room for opinion um, that the data that we have right now isn't definitive for the more holistic question like is YouTube influence uh, influencing things all con- things considered people towards extremism like are they um, making that worse um, we don't know that yet but um, there's definitely studies coming and that have just come out that are quite good so there's one recently that um, uses um, web panel data from a representative group of Americans so they have real traffic and they they're looking at actual click-throughs on recommendations and looking at which direction they're going they have issues with the classifications but they're they're fixing those so I think that will be really good information um, the study you referenced I think that's the auditing radicalization pathway studies by Ribeiro and others, um, in that they looked at people commenting on videos and seeing over time whether they moved towards the, um, they classify channels as IDW, Alt-Line and Alt-Right, and whether there was a direction towards that. Um, I thought that was quite clever, but they only looked at that one direction. So they didn't look at people moving like from something like um, Stefan Molyneux to Jordan Peterson to something more centrist. They didn't look at that direction. So I felt like that was an example of research that um, is technically quite good, but the bias really affected the way that they they ran it. Mark, your your research itself uh, found that a lot of the recommendations pointed people to more centrist content? Um, Yes, so towards mainstream content. So um, Mm -hmm. it's got an authoritative bias. Yeah, and that's after 2019, and that's that's since like April 2019. So that's mm-hmm. the recommendations. But if you're thinking radicalization, you do have to look at it more holistically. That's just one input. Um, so it could be just the existence of certain content you could blame YouTube for, or um, that video itself is engaging enough that it's more likely to radicalize than like a book. Um, I don't believe those things, but. Um, yeah, that, that's in the question when we're thinking about this more holistically. Yeah. So you would say that since these changes in 2019, would you say before the changes in 2019 they were radicalizing people or you would say that would be an exaggeration? And then the, after the changes in 2019, it's even further an exaggeration. Yeah, I think it's an exaggeration. Like one thing I'd point to is that we would expect places where people watch YouTube more for it to have an influence. And um I can see like stories are like what Kevin wrote about Caleb Kane. They're like, a, I'm not against that type of looking at this problem. Um, in fact, I like to do that whenever I do data analysis to look at the stories. So you've got a real concrete version of what you're trying to analyze. But I feel like that kind of look, you need to look at all the different types. So you need, you need uh, another person, which was, um, who has said they're being de-radicalized by um, Jordan Peterson, for example. He says he gets a lot of people telling him that um, they pulled him out of the um, all right as well. I guess like one thing I think we should talk about is is scale. Uh, and I think, Kevin, you might have mentioned this on in, in your article or on the podcast talking about how if there's only a, you know, small, you know, let's say 99% of YouTube folks are watching it and, and not getting radicalized that if 1% are, then that's an issue. Um, so I, I'd like to be able to ex- explain this, like, uh, because 
Mark, even if what you're saying is right, that the vast majority goes to uh, goes to centrist or authoritative stuff versus some of the radical stuff, uh, then you still have that that error at the end uh, that, you know, people end up going down, going down that path and becoming radicalized. So why don't we do this? Kevin, can you know, can you riff off of that and sort of give your take on it? And I'd like to hear Mark's response also. Yeah, I mean the the scale question is is the the scale there's a scale question there's a prevalence question. So the the prevalence argument is one that YouTube loves to make, Facebook also loves to make this where they say, you know, only, you know, 6% of the content on our platform is political or you know, it's it's you know, borderline content is less than 1% of all content on YouTube. And I have no reason to doubt that that's true. I mean, we we can't audit that. They don't make, you know, data like that available to the public. But I mean, just if you think about all the many things that people use YouTube for, like figuring out how to fix, you know, their broken toilet or, you know, tie a bow tie or, you know, listen to music or I mean, there are people who only use it for for those things. Um, and so that's that's totally plausible to me that this might be a small percentage of of, you know, overall usage of YouTube. Um, but the the denominator is so big. I mean, if you have people watching billions, you know, at least a billion hours a day, probably I would, I would guess that it's increased substantially since that figure came out. Um, 1% of a, of a, of a number that big is still a fairly big number. And especially when you're, you know, when you're looking at the kind of possible outcomes here, I mean, it's not just, it's not just that people are getting radicalized and then, you know, uh, posting a bunch of memes on 4chan. It's that they're, they're in some cases going out and conducting, mass shootings. They're, they're, they're becoming violent. Um, they're, you know, engaging in sort of coordinated harassment. Like this is not a a sort of, if it were just, you know, people getting sucked into big, Bigfoot conspiracy theories or whatever, like that, that's, that to me doesn't really register as a, as a grave harm, but there's a real danger here. And, And I think that, um, you know, I'd be, I'd be curious to hear Mark's take on the sort of scale question. Um, because I think that even if it's true that, you know, a small number of people uh, relative to overall YouTube consumption are experiencing this pipeline, um, I, I do think the the existence of the pipeline is something that, you know, we need to study and we need to get more transparency from YouTube about. Yeah, I'd love to hear Mark's answer on that also. Yeah, I, I agree with YouTube that it's a small percent, but yeah, it's a huge platform and um, it skews young. So I'm expecting... Um, to grow like quite a much, much, much larger than it is now. Um, I did compare, I don't have the numbers on me, I compared Fox News on cable versus YouTube and cable's still bigger than the amount of views they supposedly get. But I think um, in the next five years, we'll see that, that flip. So, but Mark, then just like talk about the scale issue, though. So if you're writing this paper pushing back on the fact that journalists are saying, journalists like Kevin are saying that YouTube is radicalizing and you you say that, that there is a big scale and maybe this is happening to a percent of folks. Um, I, I, yeah, I'd like to hear like, you know, isn't that something that, that we need to consider in this discussion? I guess only if you're worried about it. So I'm not, I just don't think it's a problem in terms of our YouTube being an influence for extreme radicalization because I see it more. There's a part of it where I'm, I'm doubting that that's a big factor, but I'm also doubting that, um, 
it's a YouTube specific problem because um, people are going to be watching video content on the internet no matter what. So let's say YouTube got rid of all right-wing content and the extreme right everything, there would just be another platform that people watch. And we saw we saw a big migration to Rumble when Q, the QAnon crackdown happened. So they're getting millions of views on Rumble now. So it's not as if uh, this pressure to remove the content or really uh, change uh, recommendations will have a massive effect. Okay, but but let's focus on on YouTube though, because that's sort of the topic of discussion. Um, you know, it's one thing that people are going to go elsewhere, but um, I want to. I, I mean, you know, we only have anecdotal data mostly on terms of the idea that you know uh, recommendations are or YouTube the platform is you know driving people to radicalization. So so far from you, I've heard arguments that have said uh, you know they're they're uh, recommending authoritative content, but not always. Um, that people would be radicalized, uh, people would be radicalized no matter what because they'd be watching videos somewhere else, and that there are other factors on you outside of YouTube that are that are causing this issue. But like, what, can you make your most convincing argument that you know YouTube itself is is not doing what Kevin has argued? Apart from those points, I'd say that um, the way I look at YouTube, the content is reflecting what people want to watch. So I think there's an intuition that it's more radicalizing for someone that just watches uh, mainstream. When they come onto YouTube, it's definitely more right-wing and there's more edgy stuff. And I think it's intuitive to think it's a rabbit hole because um, it's reflecting the population's demand for content more directly than mainstream news, although there's mainstream news are starting to become more like YouTube in that way. Um, so I can see the intuition there, but I just, I'd say I'm the type of information that I'm looking for doesn't exist to show that there's a um, radicalizing effect. And also the over concern about it is like, um, when we talked about when the discussion of uh, radical uh, Islamic radicalization comes up, um, a lot of the same arguments apply to this, which is, you know, we're talking about a small amount of numbers, more people die for other means, you know, alcoholism's more important, things like that. And I think of those things when this comes up as well. And so you did research. So you're, you're, you know, you're coming to this conclusion that there's no real issue here. Um, what in your research led you to believe that? Can you talk us through that a little bit? So my research just focused on um, recommendations so what we saw in recommendations was a mainstream influence overall, and we're doing more study to look at um, what effect personalization has on that. So um, that's the area of research that I've done. So we're kind of talking about a wider question where I'm just speculating much like everyone else is about what causes radicalization. Mm -hmm. But you're, when you looked at recommendations, did you find any radicalizing influence like you know, I know you talk about authoritative. You you said that, that YouTube steered people to authoritative sources, but did you find any evidence of even, you know, a smaller group of folks being steered towards more radicalizing content? Um, we found, um, no, I didn't, I can't, not my head, I can't think of a channel. Actually, right now there's one channel, NTD, which is doing well with recommendations. Um, 
And I think that's be, that's a uh, I can't remember what it stands for. They're part of um, the Epoch it's Times New Tang Network. Dynasty. It's a uh, part of the the Falun Gong media empire. And they've been paying for a lot of ads on YouTube as well, and mm-hmm. um, perhaps I'll get to that soon. And um, the effect of the demand for content on the election fraud conspiracy content. I think that, that has a large amount to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Um, <laughs> well, okay. I, I'm curious, Mark, yeah. Alex, if I can jump in with a question. Yeah, for please. Mark. Like, I'm just yeah. curious. So Mark, I remember when your um, original study came out, um, I got a lot of people emailing it to me, you know, saying, what do you think about this? It was sort of interpreted um, as kind of a, a you know, a, a response to my story, although I know you you were looking at this before. And, you know, you seem pretty angry about the um, narrative of the YouTube rabbit hole. And I think, you know, you were saying things like, you know, this is a, you know, conspiracy that the mainstream media is using to sort of repress the influence of, you know, social media and, you know, this, this is, you know, these narratives aren't trustworthy and this is a self-serving thing. So I, I guess I'm just curious, like, and I don't want to, you know, attribute any arguments to you that you, that you, you know, aren't comfortable making, but I'm curious, like what you think is behind like the, the sort of meta narrative here, like, like why you think if this radicalization pipeline doesn't exist. And in fact, if it's pulling people, you know, in a more mainstream direction, and has been, you know, for for as long as we've had the data. Like, why would people be coming out with these stories? Why would people be saying I was radicalized by YouTube? Why is this such a persistent thing that we keep hearing over and over again? Like, what what is what is what are the incentives of the people who are doing it if it's not actually true? Um, I think there's a there's a elite culture which looks down upon uh, popular culture. And I think this is part of it, and it's especially true of the New York Times, which I find like a, a very small subculture of that. Um, I was listening to a, Ezra Klein talk to another reporter from the New York Times who said he felt he was incentivized to write articles like this, reflexively anti-tech platform articles, and that benefited him at the New York Times. So I'm, that's definitely my background into what I'm thinking the incentives are inside place that you work and I, I definitely think the rabbit hole meme took on legs in a lot of places and i just wasn't seeing uh anything more than stories and i think you get this selection effects at play so when you tell those stories you'll get more of them and it's the same on the other side so if you're if you're more right-wing or an anti-woke youtube channel you also get lots of stories of people um feeling like the places that they work at are stifling um, free expression and things like that. So I think when you're in the public arguing about these things, you naturally attract a certain side that you keep hearing from, and it's it's hard to maintain perspective. Okay, this is actually a, a great cliffhanger to uh, take a quick break on, and then we can have Kevin respond uh, when we come back from the break because got to get our sponsor in and make sure that uh, we can pay to get this edited. All right, we'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days. 
all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back here on the second half of the Big Technology Podcast, a debate. Uh, our first debate between Kevin Roos, an uh, opinion writer at the New York Times, and Mark Ledwich, a software engineer who studied YouTube, uh, looked at the algorithm and said, uh, you know, there's there's no evidence of radicalization, at least, you know, that that on behalf of YouTube. So, Kevin, before the break, Mark was making some arguments about uh, the New York Times uh, and sort of, uh, I guess, uh, how the media is incentivized to write these anti-tech stories and um that there's no, it seems like there's no room for the other side is what he's saying. Uh, there was a lot of stuff <laughs> that was said. The floor is yours to respond. I mean, I, I think the, there are two issues here. One is, one is like, what, what are the incentives of reporters generally? Right. Um, and I think that often people who aren't, you know, close to the media, who, who don't work in the media, who don't have a lot of experience in the media tend to think that, it's just, it's clicks, right? It's like, you know, traffic, it's um, attention. Um, I would say that's that's true of some outlets and less true of others. Like, I certainly don't feel like I'm motivated by traffic. Um, and then there's the sort of, the, there's the argument that journalists are motivated by sort of prestige and, and that, you know, stories that win prizes, like you don't win a you know, Pulitzer for the story that investigates the, you know, the Wall Street bank and finds no evidence of wrongdoing, you know, like, I, I think I would grant that our incentives skew toward holding institutions to account um, and finding instances in which, you know, the public is being manipulated or taken advantage of. Um, I often tell people like, you know, we don't write about the Boeing planes that land on time and safely. Um, but that's always been part of the news business. And I don't think that's changed meaningfully. Th there was this other argument that I think Mark and some of his, um, you know, people who agree with him make, which is that the New York Times and other media institutions are sort of being mean to YouTube because they want YouTube to promote their channels more and to like, you know, 
boost authoritative mainstream sources and to sort of disappear independent creators. And I've heard this from, I heard this after I profiled PewDiePie. I've heard this for years that there's a kind of like institutional incentive for media organizations specifically to be mean to YouTube um, because they want their own content to be favored in YouTube, in the algorithm, uh, on the homepage, in trending, wherever. And so I guess I, I would just love to hear Mark like talk about what he thinks that that incentive is. Like why, why do you think YouTube gets sort of um, criticized um, by mainstream institutions? Um, do you think it's more like, I don't know. Why, why do you think that happens? Um, I think it's largely um, uh, political and cultural. So it's like YouTube represents a more right-wing version, a more uh, more scrappy, sort of low-quality low information type of platform. And that uh, maybe not everyone, but definitely I think maybe Tristan Harris and yourself want to be, have like a narrative about, themselves that um there's they're a large player in saving people from these problems so from that um that influences the way you describe or think about the systems so that you can say oh here's this one problem that if i can just shine a light on we can fix and that that's where the bias comes in and do you think like youtube is better for these changes that it has made since, you know, people started paying attention to issues like radicalization. Like they, they say that their algorithm changes have resulted in 70% less content or 70% fewer views of sort of borderline content, conspiracy theory, stuff like that. Like, do you, do you think YouTube is, is a better platform today than it was say, you know, two or three years ago? Yeah, I think, I think it's better. I definitely, like, and this is where I definitely credit to you and others pointing this out early, like Zainab as well. Um, it's good that they're not recommending uh, videos that um, are promoting things like um, conspiracies or, you know, far-right ideology. I think that's a, definitely a good thing. But I think the changes, there's like, you know, five steps forward, two steps backwards. So I think they've curtailed some really good independent um, YouTubers. People like David Pakman or Lacey Green, they don't get recommended anywhere near as much as they used to because of these changes. And I feel like they have very high quality content, like better than a lot of mainstream content. But because of this blanket heuristic, they're being disadvantaged. That's interesting. I mean, I, I often wonder, I think YouTube would would love nothing more than for there to be a universe of YouTube native creators who do straight news, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, people, you know, like Phil DeFranco, people who, I mean, he's doing some opinion too, but people, you know, who's who could just sort of do what TV people on the news do, but like do it in a YouTube way. Like, I think that would make them very happy because they, they love promoting their own creators. And I don't think they, you know, my, my sense is that they kind of, they promote mainstream news sources because they, they don't have to like stay up at night wondering if, you know, NBC is going to publish some crazy conspiracy theory. Um, 
it's sort of a proxy for how much they can be sort of trusted to at least report as close to the truth as they as they can. Um, but I I do I do think they would like there to be a universe of YouTube creators who do that kind of thing. I just don't think YouTube creators are incentivized to do that kind of thing um, because you know it's not it's not good for views. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's that the demand for content is much more high for uh, opinion than it is for straight news. I think you guys find that between your departments as well. Um, do you worry about the um, the criticism from media has um, made YouTube defensive, so they wouldn't take risks in terms of what content they promote? I, I think that they are very sensitive to uh, elite opinion and media is part of that. I think they're sensitive to politicians. I think they're sensitive to, um, you know, their peers in the tech world. Um, they want to, you know, they want to be seen as the good guys. And so I think they want to sort of be, you know, small C conservative with respect to, you know, if they, if, if they, you know, take it as a given that their algorithm is going to throw, you know, X billion views to a set of channels. Um, they want those to, they want to make sure that those, those channels are not going to, you know, be the next Alex, Alex Jones's. And so I think, you know, a shortcut to do, it's sort of like how, you know, now if you search for nine 11 conspiracy theory videos or moon landing videos, like they'll give you a little thing from like Wikipedia on the video and so they're sort of outsourcing sort of trust to to Wikipedia because they don't want to write their own little blurbs. And I think that that's I think of what they're doing with sort of this authoritative news push as a version of that, where it's like they they don't um, they don't want to be recommending conspiracy theory videos, but they know that they have this algorithm that is you know needs to recommend something, and so they feel more comfortable you know, recommending, like creating sort of a safe bucket of things that they know are not going to, you know, be extremist or contain hate speech and recommending those. And I, and I do think there's a danger of sort of making that bucket too small um, and, and sort of too, um, you know, not, not inclusive enough. Um, but I also think that that problem is um, more easily solved than, you know, the question of radicalizing people. Like, I think that it's, um, I, I think that it's really, I think what they don't want to do is create a situation like they've had for the past couple of years where they end up, you know, by sort of negligence, recommending these awful videos to, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of people. Um, and they don't even really know that they're doing it. Yeah. Another, another aspect to that is they're, they are, they do have competitors, and in terms of the engagement of the platform, how entertaining those recommendations are matters in terms of whether they're going to lose to TikTok. And I, I feel like TikTok did a better job with their recommendation algorithm, which you know, caused much more of the views than on YouTube. Um, and they have to think about that. So if they if they make their recommendations extremely bland, um, then that's opportunity for competitors that aren't doing that. 
Right. Alex, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that you were pro- you promised your listeners a debate. So I feel like we should like, no, this is good. I'm letting this <laughs> breathe because this is, Oh, well, if you want to amp it up by no, all I, means, I, but I think people are going to find this fascinating. I, I, I agree with Mark about, uh, you know, the, the fact that this is a broader phenomenon than just the YouTube algorithm. And, and in fact, one of the things I'm sort of looking at now is like, what, what is this demand side, you know, part of the equation? Like what, um, hmm. You know what we see. You mean there are right people now. involved in these decisions too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously. Like people, you know, people make choices. The the thing that's that I I sort of um, push back on is this idea that people have total control over their information environments, even when things are being recommended to them. Um, there's been a lot of academic research about the power of recommendations, the sort of psychological power. Um, there have been some interesting studies around things like music recommendations that people actually like a song more when they, you know, know that it's gotten five stars from Spotify for, you know, or, or ended up on some personalized playlist for them. Um, they they trust the things that are fed to them by an algorithm. And in the case of YouTube, like what YouTube's recommendation algorithm does is it really it not only recommends videos, but it dramatically constrains the universe of possible videos. There are billions of videos on YouTube, but you are only going to see a couple dozen of them on any given day because those are the ones that are going to sort of appear in your sidebar and on your homepage. And so I, I think people have sort of free free will and in, in free choice um, in some aspects, but I really, I really think that, you know, part of the mistake people make in the opposite direction is assuming that um, you know, people are in total control of their choices because we know, I mean, these platforms make billions of dollars a year by, by sort of trying to change people's minds, um, in the form of targeted advertising, they know how influential their recommendations are. Uh, and that's a huge part of what's made platforms like YouTube so successful. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not arguing that, uh, recommendations, uh, like totally controlling people, um, like in, in your article with Club Can, you called it um, like steering people. And I, I feel like that's too strong a word in terms of the influence that it's having. Like um, that's why I use the gentle breeze and a storm analogy. And I think what happened with the election fraud, which you looked at quite closely, um, shows this in that YouTube was curtailing recommendations to videos. On average, you'll find exceptions, but on average, videos that were promoting the election fraud narrative were recommended a lot less. Um, but despite that, the content that was promoting it did really well. So um, because uh, Fox News, who are promoted by the algorithm, were disputing mostly the election fraud narrative, they lost views at the same time that places like Newsmax and NTD and One American News Network, they gained a lot of recommendations. And, and so gained a lot of views despite not being recommended as much. Uh, NTD was an exception, but um, the others, that that's true. Right. I mean, I think that really, if we're talking about the U2 algorithm, we have to sort of separate it into two, like algorithm 1.0, or depending on how you count, you know, the sort of pre-2019 algorithm, uh, and then what's happened since. Because I, I do think that, you know, just anecdotally, and also from some studies that have come out, like it does appear that, YouTube is recommending, you know, much more, it's much more likely to be recommending things from like big, you know, professional media organizations than it used to. Um, and also a lot of the sort of 
quote unquote worst people have been deplatformed. Um, you know, Stefan Molyneux is no longer on YouTube. Um, you know, Richard Spencer is no longer on YouTube. These people who were, I mean, Stefan Molyneux was not a marginal figure. He had, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. He got hundreds of millions of lifetime views. Like these were some of the most popular political voices on the platform. Um, and so, you know, not only is the algorithm different now, but the pool of available videos it's picking from is is different in some meaningful ways. Okay, I do have a, a few pickups here. Mark, hold, hold the question. We'll let you ask it. But I have some some follow ups here. So first of all, Kevin, um, you know, Mark asked you about, uh, you know, do you worry that your stories will get YouTube to remove, uh, you know, too much content, something like that? And you answered looking at it from YouTube's perspective, but I'm interested from your perspective. Do you ever think about like the fact that um, you're reporting on the stuff that you're reporting on what might lead to a crackdown for YouTube that gets folks who shouldn't be demonetized, demonetized and independent creators uh, never get a real chance to get off the ground? Like, how do you personally feel about that? Well, first of all, I don't think that, you know, the goal of my reporting is not to get YouTube to take down stuff. Um, that is not you know, a metric that I am sort of, you know, aiming toward my, my goal is to report on what's happening on YouTube. And if that leads them to want to take down stuff and to feel pressure to take down stuff, then that that's that, but that's not my goal. I would, I would say I, I, right. but you have to know that, that that's a, you know, very clear potential outcome when you write a story course, like of this. Course. And I think, you know, that I'm not naive about that. Um, I, I, I guess I worry about, the um i worry about the false positives less than the than the false negatives um to be sure like i you know something like this happened with with qanon and the crackdown over qanon and you know one a podcast that i really love um is this podcast qanon anonymous which is a sort of anti qanon podcast but because it had the name qanon in the title like it got swept in the crackdown um, which sucked, <laughs> which, you know, I was like, I don't, I don't want to miss this podcast. This is a great podcast. So, um, but they, you know, they made a stink about it and got it restored. And, and, you know, there are avenues for sort of redress of grievances in the case of a false positive. And so I guess I worry less about the sort of overbroad application of these rules. Cause I mean, really we're still in a phase where these companies are being flooded with sort of misinformation. Um, like it, it's, it's, we are nowhere near the point of having a totally clean house um, as far as, as you know, information integrity goes. And so I just think it's a little premature to worry about, you know, whether we're sweeping up too much stuff, you know, when, whether YouTube is, is sweeping up too much stuff when it goes after white nationalism and neo-Nazis. Right. And then how about, how about um, the Streisand effect, right? Do you think that the fact that all these folks are getting banned will actually make their message resonate maybe with a smaller group of people, but they'll use it as proof to say, look, we're right. And then, you know, big media and big tech don't want you to know because that's certainly the argument they make. Well, let's just look at like what actually happens to people after they get deplatformed. I and mean, when was the last time you heard from Alex Jones? When he shows up on other people's podcasts, like he did <laughs> right, just exactly. show I up guess on, he, he just went on yeah, Joe Rogan, <laughs> right? Who has a, not a, uh, has a smaller audience than this show, but, uh, not by much. <laughs> <laughs> right. So like, but Stefan Molyneux is a great example. Like he, you know, he still puts up his videos in, on BitChute and other, you know, minor video platforms, but he's struggling. 
he's not happy that he was deplatformed from YouTube. And, um, you know, I think that the people who have been banned by these platforms generally don't, I mean, it's really hard to rebuild that audience on a, on a smaller platform. And I guess as far as if I was ranking harms, like I definitely worry about building these sort of concentrated spaces, you know, where there is like, you know, like parlor or, you know, places where there is like gab, you know, an ex- a concentrated amount of sort of extremist activity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I actually worry about that less than that sort of contagion effect where you have people who go onto YouTube, go onto Facebook, they're looking for self-help or parenting advice or, you know, health information or, you know, they're, they're watching, you know, unboxing videos or whatever. And then they're sort of coming across this universe of extremist content that sort of pulls them in. And that is what to me is, is more worrisome than the kind of the small clusters and the of parlors. extremist activity. Yeah. Okay. And then I got one more, one more pickup for you and then could go back to Mark, but uh, you know, Mark mentioned competition and TikTok as a competitor. It's kind of kind of ridiculous because you know if all this bad stuff is powering YouTube, <laughs> then and then you know maybe TikTok uses the dark arts of social recommendation engines and grows. Um, you know we might end up with a company based in China, uh, you know that's crushing YouTube, and uh, and uh, yeah, and sort of less responsive to legitimate concerns and maybe doing stuff in the background. So how much do you think about that in terms of, you know, and I know like it's kind of a crazy situation because like it's almost asking how could YouTube weaken itself by removing all this radicalization? <laughs> but, but you know, what do you think about that though? Well, I think TikTok and YouTube are different products. I mean, they're both video platforms that are sort of driven by recommendation engines, but TikTok is, you know, very short form um, videos, YouTube, you know, I don't know what the median length of a, of a YouTube video is, but it's probably significantly longer than a TikTok video. Um, and I think TikTok is an interesting case of like moderating in the other direction. So YouTube started off as like total free for all and then has sort of gradually like winnowed down. Like we don't want, you know, clickbait. We don't want, you know, nudity. We don't want neo-Nazis. We don't like they've sort of shrunk the pool over time. Whereas TikTok started out like very constrained, like there was basically no politics on TikTok at the beginning. And that was a conscious choice because ByteDance wanted it to be a fun, lighthearted place. They didn't want people talking about, you know, oppression and, and you know, injustice. And they wanted to keep it light. They wanted, you know, teenagers renegating you know in their bathrooms or whatever so they have sort of expanded what is considered acceptable over time where they started letting on political videos and then they started sort of broadening out like i think the diversity of content is probably higher on tiktok now than it was a year ago so they're sort of approach i think they're probably going to end up in a pretty similar place but they're approaching it from different directions which is a really interesting thing to me yeah yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens there because, I mean, just having the experience of spending more time on TikTok lately, that thing is addicting. And uh, I mean, I have a pretty good YouTube addiction right now as it is, and uh, it'll be interesting because it's to me it's a zero sum game. Time on TikTok is time, not on YouTube. So that competition will be interesting to watch, especially as they make decisions based off of safety. Okay, we are coming close to being out of time. Uh, and I'm sorry, Mark, I kind of took the floor from you. So <laughs> right. do you have uh, any last questions or thoughts 
that you just would like to ask, quite, ask Kevin, yeah. I just want to d- downplay the influence recommendations a little bit in that um, the best estimate for political videos I've seen is about 40% of the recommendations, uh, sorry, 40% of the views coming to political videos coming from recommendations. So there's a large amount where it's coming from links and search and other means. And direct, right? People just, yeah, well, that's search, right? Yeah. So people are often in social media, they're in private chats with each other or they're in Facebook or Twitter and they're clicking on links through that amongst other means. So there's lots of ways for the content that's in demand for people to get at. And if, and I think if you, and that will change depending on what you do with the recommendations. So if you make your recommendations particularly bland, I think that would actually change that makeup. It would go down to less than even 40%. And you could also get recommend, like if you, the way that I, I think rabbit hole is a good term because <laughs> I kind of fall into these things. And um, generally like what happens is I'll just watch like one genre of video so much. And then, you know, YouTube will recommend something new and then I'll just start going direct to it. And just for the listeners, um, most of my YouTube videos are just like sharks and whales in the ocean, not uh, <laughs> not any political leaning. And I think that's probably mirrors most YouTube users. But um, but yeah, it's uh, the recommendation plays one part and then you start going direct. So it's a process. It's a process. Uh, Kevin, do you have any uh, last thoughts? Um. I'm I'm really appreciative for uh, all the research being done um, by Mark and others on this. I think it's super important for uh, the academy, for you know engineers and data scientists and for journalists all to be looking at these problems simultaneously. So even though uh, you know you you disagree with my reporting, and I'm I'm really glad that you're that you're looking at this and and doing the work. It'd be great. Um, my next study, if you could uh, write it up on the New York Times. <laughs> so do you guys feel like you, uh, you know, I think there was, uh, you know, a bit of a standoff. Do you guys feel like you understand each other's points a little bit more broad after this conversation? Yeah, I think we got much deeper into the dynamics of this problem than, than you would in an article. Yeah, it's good. You're a peacemaker, Alex. Okay, well, I I did want to say that um, I'm a believer in this type of dialogue. I think that this is good, benefits everyone. So if there's folks listening who have bone to pick with other reporters <laughs> uh, or reporters who don't like what's going on in industry, we can see if we can set more of these up. But I'm I have to say I'm thrilled to have uh, the opportunity to host the host this discussion. Uh, there was a point like here in the second half where the, such a great conversation that. It was time to just let it breathe, and I and I'm grateful for you guys uh, coming on and running with it, and you know being able to address each other and you know bring up these questions. And I agree, it's uh, something that we're going to be talking about for a long time. More dialogue, more research, more reporting. All this. Is I will good. say, if you if you want this to go viral on on YouTube, you're going to have to give it a title like you know programmer owns journalist. Like it's, you're not going to get any views with the, the, the boring yeah. title. Yeah. It's a yeah. New York times admitter. New York times reporter admits the censorship campaign is well on its way. <laughs> okay, great. Well, we'll find a creative title. I mean, I don't know. I'd like to go with the bland ones. It's probably why I'm losing out to TikTok. but thanks everybody for listening. And thank you, Kevin and Mark for joining us here on the big technology podcast. If you're a new listener, uh, please subscribe. We release a new episode every Wednesday with tech insiders, outside agitators, and maybe we'll do some more debates like this. 
If you're a longtime listener, a rating goes a long way. So if you could rate us, doesn't matter how many stars, but a rating would be great on your app of choice. We would appreciate that. Thanks again. Uh, we will be back next week with a new edition of Big Technology Podcast. Until then, take care of yourself and we will see you then.